Sego and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. Uh, flying solo today. Um, and of course, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, we're at a really strange hour. <laughs> we're uh, we're running this thing a little bit late in the evening. Um, look, we are off on WBAI this week, but so this show is specific to. Uh, to WPFW. So I want to, uh, again, I want to welcome and thank the uh, listening audience in, in, in Washington. I'm going to talk a little bit about my, one of my trips to Washington during the show. Um, but I have to remind people that this is listener-supported radio, and we do absolutely depend on your contributions to keep these radio stations, both WBAI and WPFW, uh, on the air. So I do ask that you go to the pledge lines. You go to uh, uh, 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go online to WPFWFM.org and make a contribution um, of any size. You know, And I'm going to talk about something today that... That's going to demonstrate just how um, how much we don't fit in to you know what most people view as um, you know governmental services or you know or remedies for conflicts or, or whatever else. And look, we all have problems with cops. We all have problems with courts, especially if you're uh, you're people of color. Um, but our situation is a little bit unique, and so I'm going to get into it a little bit. I know I've talked about some of this stuff before, um, so I do want to, um, uh, but I, I want to make a specific point because there is some some news, some something that happened this week that uh, that's relevant to to you know really the, just the fact that it just doesn't end. We, we are constantly under under some sort of pressure, assault, oppression, whatever you want to call it. Um, by the powers that be, and you know, we got a letter issued uh, to a bunch of the the businesses here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation um, from the U.S. Department of Justice, the uh, U.S. Attorney in the, uh, the Western District of New York. So I'm going to talk about that, but I, I want to do a little bit of a lead into this. So um, so bear with me. Uh, but again, if you're able to make a contribution to WPFW, I would greatly appreciate that you do so. And if you do so in the name of this of this, uh, this program, I would appreciate that even a little bit more. So um, once again, let me give you the number just you know, just so you, in case you forgot, um, 202-588-9739 or go online and follow the prompts to WPFWFM.org. All right. Um, so in 2007... The United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, this was a declaration that had been in the works for decades. And and look, by the time it finally gets done, it is... Um, Look, it is, it is certainly not the panacea, okay? It, it doesn't solve a lot of problems. In fact, um, you know, I've got a, my, my trusty copy here of um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And Article 43 kind of puts it in a little bit of perspective. It says, the rights recognized herein constitute the minimum standards for the survival, dignity, and well-being of the indigenous peoples of the world. So, so when they put this together... They had to do so acknowledging that what they were putting together was the minimum standard. And four nations voted against it. 
United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They voted against even accepting what had really been established as the minimum standard for dignity and survival. So if you don't meet that minimum standard, then where do native people, indigenous people, where, where are we in the, in the fight for our dignity and the fight for our survival? Well, it's, it's tenuous, that's for sure. So that's 2007. Now, we never get a really good explanation on why, although we did uncover some documents from the National Security Agency and, uh, you know, that, that suggested that they were concerned about you know, how much this would impact international law um, and the idea that, that some of their controls would be taken away. But, but again, we never got anybody to directly answer us. But in 2010... Under the Obama administration, he made a, a pledge or a commitment to host a series. In fact, the, the, the State Department would host the, the first meeting, but host a series of consultations to take a new look at the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And you know, basically, let's have a conversation with a blank slate. And, uh, well, that's not really that easy. But, but his idea was, let's revisit it and f- figure out where the United States, under his administration, would, uh, would come out on uh, regarding the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So the first day, of, and this was a two-day event, and there may have been more, but I, I know the one I'm talking about is something that I attended. I went down to Washington. Um, again, day one was in... The, uh, at the State Department, and that was for, quote-unquote, tribal leaders. Um, and, uh, look, it was, it was not very productive, uh, you know, the, the first day. And, you know, a lot of it was, you know, a lot of backslapping, you know, a bunch of these, the, the so-called tribal leaders on how much they had worked and how much they accomplished. And, and they, they tried to cite the specific, you know, even just using the word indigenous peoples. You know, they, they, you know, they spent a, a good deal of time describing how important and how significant that was, even in the title of, uh, to the, the declaration. Um, so, yeah, the, we listened to a bunch, of, you know, a bunch of those who were involved in the crafting and drafting and construction of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, basically take their bow, I guess. You know, now there was a forum for them to do it. Then there was a lot of talk about sacred sites, but not, you know, again, one of the problems with, with this whole document is it never addresses things like sovereignty. I mean, the, the word sovereignty only shows up once in the document, and it's relating to the nation states that basically have been oppressing indigenous peoples all these years. And, and so the commitment from this thing, not only beyond being the minimum standard, is, a, um, is essentially a, a promise or uh, a statement that nothing in it is intended to uh, infringe on the sovereignty of the nation states. Now, it doesn't address things like na- uh, you know, nation, uh, native nations and statehood you know, uh, and, and sovereignty, any of that stuff. But anyway... So that was day one. Um, so guys like me, I could, I could go there. And in fact, a buddy of mine, Ross, John, and I, we went to this thing, and we listened in on this. And we were disappointed at what we heard um, on day one. 
But now day two was a little bit different. Day two was was slated as the opportunity for NGOs. That means the rest of us. Um, NGOs to weigh in on... Uh, on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and and other issues as well, and so what happened is, and they hosted this one at the uh, NMAI, the National Museum of the American Indian. I hate the name, but anyway, National Museum uh, of the American Indian in Washington D.C. Nice museum. I hate the name. Um, so they hosted it there at um, in their auditorium, in one of their auditoriums. Anyway, I don't know how many they have, but in their auditorium, and. On the stage, essentially, were almost all of the federal agencies, you know, DOD, DOE, um, uh, Department of Defense, Department of uh, Energy, I think Department of Commerce, the Interior Department was there, I think the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was represented specifically there, the White House was represented there uh, by both the senior policy advisor to, to Obama and, uh, um, and the um, the woman who would become the senior policy advisor, she was serving in another capacity at the time. So I'm talking about Kim Teehee and Jody Gillette. They um, they were a big part of this meeting. Um, I think the you know the Department of Justice was there. Um, anyway, you know, all the do whatevers that <laughs> were there, um, and they're all on the stage. And you know some of them weighed in, and and of course they gave their their standard. Um, comments or responses to you know to why we were gathered there and of course everybody was exuding all of this optimism about what would come out of this whole thing but then we started getting a chance to to you know delve into some of the uh, the particulars i guess and one of the things that got mentioned a few times even before any questions were were fielded was this issue that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the, the, the possibility that it could undermine the current remedy that the United States claimed existed um, for resolving conflicts. And so this, this kept getting brought up. And then when we went to questions, we, we actually went to a question um, where somebody had asked, so why did the United States... Um, vote against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Why, why did they vote against it? And the answer was, was again, it was a little sketchy. They, they suggested that there was um, um, some concern about how much this could affect or impact um, you know, uh, international law. You know, having a declaration that the international community was embracing um, how much it could affect international law. Um, there wasn't even a lot of conversation about how much it would affect domestic law, except for the, um, I'm sorry, the, the continued reference to the, the quote-unquote current remedy. So finally, I, I got to, a chance to talk, and I, and I, <laughs> I probably over, um, um, overused my welcome, put it this way. Um, but I'd ask the, the question, what is this current remedy you guys keep talking about? I mean, you've mentioned it multiple times, and we don't understand what this remedy is because we don't see a remedy. And what they told us was court. They said court is the current remedy. And they were concerned that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples would undermine the current remedy, the, you know, the ability 
for courts to resolve conflict between the federal government and state government um, w- with Native people. And, you know, and, and I was kind of blown away by that. I said, so you mean to tell me you believe, and all of you believe, that your courts, your courts, your judges, your laws stand as a remedy for dealing with Native people who's, you know, and, and look, regardless of what the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People say, we regard our, our we believe our sovereignty is still exists, is still intact. Your courts can't hear issues of sovereignty. Your courts are bound by your laws. So everything that you deal with us, uh, or every time you deal with us in your courts, the first thing you do is jam us into your jurisdiction, whether it really exists or not. So that's the first thing that you do. And then, of course, you have crappy rulings. I mean, in 2005, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the darling, the liberal darling of the U.S. Supreme Court, who, by the way, is responsible for the current status of the status of the Supreme Court, because rather than retiring during the Obama administration, she hung on um, because it was so important. You know, her own ego got in the way. And so Trump gets to replace her. Look, look I'm not saying anything. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, get after her. I mean, look, uh, about her dying. But I mean, hell, she was 80, you know, in her 80s during the Obama administration. I mean, and she knew that Obama could replace her, but didn't. Anyway, I, I kind of I digress. Um, but she ruled in 2005 in the city of Cheryl versus Oneida against the Oneidas. <laughs> and this case involved the Oneidas buying land back, buying land back now, not claiming, taking, you know, squatting, <laughs> occupying you know, or trying to sue for land back, but buying land back in their, not just their ancestral claim area, or ancestral lands, but in an area that the, the Supreme Court had ruled the Oneidas had the right to sue for fair title. In, in a, so a previous court had done this. And of course, then the, the, the Supreme Court said, work it out. I mean, they didn't want to make a ruling. They never want to make a ruling. That's why we end up with all of these... We end up with a judgment that kind of kind of goes our way, but it never gets resolved. You know, so whether you're talking about the Black Hills or whether you're talking about the Oneida claim area. So the Oneidas bought land back. And then this, then one of the municipalities that squatted on Oneida land, the city of Cheryl, sued the Oneidas um, for taxes, property taxes. And. So the Oneidas were trying to make the uh, argue that they had the right to to reclaim some of this land. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg rules against the Oneidas. And in her ruling, she actually cites the doctrine of Christian discovery in footnote number one of her of her ruling. Now, she, she voted, you know, um, with the, the majority in this ruling against the Oneidas. But she also wrote the opinion. So the opinion she wrote was 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 obviously the information that the court had relied on. It wasn't just her, her, her exclusive opinion on this. That's not the way these courts work. She, she wrote the opinion based on what, you know, what it was the court used to rule against the Oneidas. And she cited the Doctrine of Christian Discovery as footnote number one. Now, 
I hate to state the obvious, but she's Jewish, or she was. I mean, so this Jewish woman on the court cites the doctrine of Christian discovery, which, you know, if you don't know what the doctrine of Christian discovery is, then we have to do that show again. But um, it is essentially this notion that comes from, from the church, it comes from the Vatican, that suggests that once... <laughs> That once our land was discovered by white people, they got to claim title to it. I mean, in fact, in footnote number one, Ginsburg, she describes that. She says, you know, the, you know, the title to the land um, upon discovery became vested in the sovereign. First, the European nations, discovering nations of Europe, the, um, then the states and the United States. I mean, she doesn't say how that happened, but this is essentially the premise of the doctrine of Christian discovery. That, that basically when Christian nations discovered lands that were merely occupied by pagans, they could just claim it. They could just say, no, this is ours now. We put a flag in the ground, so now it's ours. We don't care how many millions of people lived here first. So that's what she cited. And you know what? That, might, that was the footnote. In her ruling when she, when she wanted to cite specific legal doctrine, because this is, like, this is a little touchy here. The idea that the United States codifies this church religious dogma into law, and, and she's not the first one to do it. I, you know, back in you know, the 1820s is when Justice John Marshall essentially codified the doctrine of Christian discovery into law in Johnson v. McIntosh, basically saying that, you know, that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. Why? What, what, do you, what do you mean it was necessarily diminished? You know, but anyway, he, he makes all of these, these rulings or all this legal dicta uh, d- describing, you know, how it is that, um, that the United States could claim our title, the title to our lands. And, and uh, frankly, I think Justice John Marshall, and I digress again, um, is he really should be praised because at the end of the day, this one judge— his court, I should say, solved the United States problem, land title problem. He basically brought in church dogma and said, well, this is how we own the land now. We own the land now because the church had a, had a, had a policy that, that claimed lands could be claimed for Christendom. So we're turning that into, uh, you know, in, into, federal, into federal law, that we could simply claim lands because we discovered it, regardless of how many people lived there first. And we are a Christian European nation at first, and then, you know, and then goes, <laughs> I mean, the United States didn't stop claiming land after, uh, um, you know, after the, the Revolutionary War. They kept doing much of it, uh, including all the way to Hawaii and the Philippines and everyplace else. But, but re- again, so that's what the doctrine of Christian discovery is. And the idea that this, this liberal darling Jewish woman on the court would cite this is just another example about why these courts are not remedies for us. I mean, how do, how do we consider a court some sort of unbiased, blind, you know, a ju- a judicial body when they already have this incredible bias. And that's not the only thing that she ruled. I mean, she actually cited something she called the doctrine of impossibility. 
Yeah, let that sink in. So what is the doctrine of impossibility? Well, the doctrine of impossibility is once we took your land, whether we screwed you out of it, whether we, you know, we lied, whether we cheated, whether we, we just squatted on it so you couldn't claim it anymore, whatever, however we got your land, you can't have it back. I mean, that's basically what the doctrine of impossibility is. It says that once our jurisdiction, Native people, once we no longer are able for whatever reason, just or unjust, are able to assert our jurisdiction, our governmental control over lands, once that's been displaced by white people, we can never claim it back. That's the doctrine. Of, it says that's impossible. It's impossible to do that. Well, the only problem is it's not impossible. In, in fact, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg used the doctrine of impossibility against the Oneidas, 200 miles down the road, the Senecas had um, resolved and renegotiated what they called the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act. This was this actually became a, you know federal law. It was it was a, a law that was passed. It's called the, the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act, and it was de- designed to to solve a an incredible you know um, lopsided lease that the um, white people had against Seneca land, and so. And, and how it worked out, the Senecas got paid, and they were able to, re, you know, reacquire uh, lost lands, and that's the the significant part. So, in a little piece at the end of the Salamanca Lee Settlement Act, it was the the land acquisitions clause, and that, and this was solved in ni- like 1990, just just for reference. So, not way before um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg rules in 2005, but. Contemporary enough that some of the people, in fact, even today, some of the people are still alive that were involved in this. So the, the Land Acquisition Clause of the Salamanca Lee Settlement Act enabled the Senecas to, to reclaim land and reclaim jurisdictional control over that land. And it wasn't through some sort of trust land, you know, feed a trust process. It was, it was a specific carve-out that streamlined the whole process for the Senecas to reacquire lost lands. Yeah. So they, and and all they really had to do was either announce that they had purchased or their intent to purchase land. And the Interior Department, or the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Assistant Secretary, who was the, the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, basically had 30 days to make a case as to why it shouldn't be, why they shouldn't be able to do it. And, and, of course, the, the, the whole provision was, was geared towards them reacquiring land. So, and they've done it. They, they've done it a few times. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg says it's impossible for, and, and then she cited a case out in like Yankton Sioux or something like that, that was over 100 years old or something like that. Only less than a decade, or only about a decade before, decade and a half, 15 years before, was this Salamanca Lee Settlement Act. So she ruled wrongly, wrongly. I mean, she made a bad ruling. And this is one of the judges that most people expect Native people could, we should be able to rely on her. Well, and, and you know, of course, that's the expectation that people had with Obama. And now are trying to say that, that we should have this with, with Biden. Oh, look, he put a Native person in, at the head of the Interior Department. Well, we're still waiting to see what happens there. You know, and people can say, well, it hasn't been that long yet. Well, some of these things, 
that we're dealing with the Interior Department over, like gaming and, and so many other issues, land use, we've been fighting this stuff for decades, for decades. And invariably what happens is a law gets passed where we aren't even mentioned. And in spite of whether there was any legislative intent for that law to be applied to us, it gets applied to us. And, you know, one of the examples is uh, something that we call, um, that was called the floor tax. So the federal government was trying to pay for health insurance for kids. And um, it was called CHIPRA, the Child uh, Children's Health Insurance um, something reauthorization act or, you know, uh, program or something anyway, CHIPRA. And to pay for it, they decided, well, we're going to jack up the, the, the federal excise tax on, on cigarettes and other tobacco products. So they did that. And, you know, so the price of, you know, the federal excise tax was like, you know, $3.60. And they ran it all the way up to like $10 even. And so then what they added was a little piece at the end of this um, chipper that, or, and, and the increase in the excise tax. And they called it the floor tax. And what they said is that if product has been cleared through, you know, through the excise tax process, which is usually like customs or something like that, or, you know, uh, uh, taken out of bond, as they say, um, at the old tax rate, but had not been sold yet. So if it was sitting on the floor, sitting on somebody's floor, that they could... Um, um, force you to pay the, the, the tax, the, the, the um, increase in the tax. Now, this was never intended, and I know this because I talked to both a congressman and a senator who was, invo- who was involved in this, uh, this legislation, um, and took it all the way to the White House. I met with the senior policy advisor to the White House. And, uh, and it was clear that there was never an intent for this law to mean that a, that a native smoke shop who had purchased product and, you know, from, from you know, the Commerce Stream, the U.S. Commerce Stream, and has it on their shelves, nobody expected that every store was going to have to pay this increase. In fact, we, we knew we, we, once the, the product is here, we're, we're not going to pay a tax, uh, an added tax to it. And, you know, we were advised, you know, by legal counsel that that, that wasn't going to happen. And then people got letters saying that they had to pay fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. I mean, a few people who had were doing like um, native wholesalers. They had larger inventories, and and then the the Treasury Department made assumptions on on how much product people would have. And then they and then they said, if you want to negotiate this, you have to pay the tax, and then bring in all your records, show us everything about your business. And maybe we'll give you some of your money back. And, and of course, that didn't happen. But, you know, we fought that and, and eventually it, it, it kind of went away. But it's an example of how a law that got passed had nothing to do with us. But then they but because we're not mentioned in there either to be excluded, um, then they just they just include us in it. And, you know, and it was kind of a, a difficult battle. Like I, like I said, for me to go to Washington and get an audience with a senior policy advisor to the White House, that's not that's a pretty tough hill to climb. I mean, I, you know, even <laughs> this um, the staffer who, whose name was Jody Gillette, 
even she kind of marvel or remarked about it. You know, not everybody gets a chance to talk to us about this kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot of federally recognized tribes, and of course, I'm not a federally recognized tribe. I'm just an advocate. And and I said, yeah, but you know that I'm right here. I mean, and she had to acknowledge that there was nothing to suggest that there was ever legislative intent. So anyway, that that went away. But it never officially goes away. They just stop sending letters. So they never correct it. And in fact, some Native people paid it. They didn't get their money back. And I don't know if Walmart and Walgreens and all of these other um, retailers had to turn around and pay this. We never saw, there was never any real transparency there. So that's one example. <laughs> now, the, one of the other examples um, is, is a case, and I might have mentioned it on the program, but a, a friend of mine who was a Seneca wholesaler, eight years ago, he um, had a, a, a load of cigarettes that he was sending native brands from, from Seneca territory um, to Aquasasne and then to Gunyonga, two, two native territories. And on the way, the truck got pulled over, not for having cigarettes, but uh, it got pulled over because of a safety inspection issue. And um, once the police discovered that it had uh, tobacco on it, um, busted open the back of the truck uh, and opened up a cart, a, a case, pulled out a carton, opened up a carton and looked at a pack and saw that it didn't have a New York State stamp on it. And so they seized the product, $150,000 worth of product, and then turned around and, and um, the, the Treasury or the, um, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance uh, turned around and fined this, um, you know, again, a friend of mine here lives in, in Seneca Territory, uh, fined him like $1.3 million. And, and of course he fought it. And, you know, he, he talked about the illegal search and seizure, the fact that at that, that point, it wasn't his product. He was the, essentially serving as a common carrier. Um, you know, made all of his cases. Of course, made all of the, the, the sovereignty arguments and that kind of stuff. Um, and just lost. And, uh, you know, he lost it while it was within the tax um, tax hearings that they had. Then before a tax tribunal. Then finally it started getting into, um, into the court system. But in order, for, again, I got to repeat this. In order to fight this thing, he had to pay the $1.3 million. Otherwise, he couldn't fight it. I mean, he literally had to pay the $1.3 million up front to appeal it. As it would turn out, they would drop the fine. But they wouldn't drop the fine because, like everybody else knows, that we sell unstamped cigarettes. We sell native brands on our territory without New York State tax on it. I mean, it's common knowledge. I mean, it's... I mean, everybody knows this. And so he didn't win his case. A four, you know, judge panel decided we don't want this guy to have to pay this fine. So they, they found that out. And they and they they basically dismissed the fine based on an illegal search and seizure, something that was argued from day one. So my point is in telling this story, and this story highlights it so, so clearly, is that these courts are not a remedy for the conflict that exists between their law, their regulatory system, and ours. 
I mean, there's no place. I and mean, look, we don't have an open door to sit at the table with the governor of the state of New York or, the, you know, the president of the White House. It, it, was, it was a hell of a battle for me to get an audience with the senior policy advisor back during the Obama administration. And, and look, Deb Haaland today, I mean, look, she's doing magazine articles about the fashion that she wears, the, the clothing that she, line that she, you know, she prefers. Um, uh, I saw an article about how she cooks and that kind of stuff. Not seeing a whole lot of, you know, of substance coming out of this thing. But, and we certainly haven't had an audience with her. But so this notion that the courts are a remedy See, the courts don't want to rule on issues of sovereignty. They don't want to rule. Uh, so, so what is the standard? I mean, uh, let me go back in time a little bit. Just, you know, probably months before this seizure that happened almost a decade ago now, I had gone to Albany and I had basically met with, with two state senators. One was a Democrat, one was a, one was a Republican, and I asked them, if they would ask, because we couldn't get an answer, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance, and this is under the Cuomo administration, if they would ask them, what's their policy? Because the laws had changed. You know, we were no longer buying from New York State wholesalers anymore. That, they had put an end to that. So now we were relying almost completely on native brands, some that we manufactured, but some that other territories manufactured that we brought in. And this was our way to, to stay in business, stay in the tobacco business. And it's also something that was mentioned in previous cases that were always cited as, as the means for which the states could tax us. It, but there was always a, a mention in there, that, and it was something to the effect that said, the, the policy that New York State is attempting to adopt here, which is to have the burden of the taxes on the consumer by pre-collecting that tax, from the wholesaler or from the from the stamping agent before it would even come to our territories or any territory for that matter, um, they said that stood on markedly different ground than let's say a product that that we manufactured or that we added value to, or or it stood on markedly different ground than taxing us directly for something that we were doing, other than just you know buying something like Marlboros or Newports bringing them onto our territory without tax and then selling it to John Q. White guy coming up to, you know, coming to our territory. You know, and of course, there, some of the other arguments in a lot, of, a lot of these cases that involved us selling tobacco products, for instance, always made it sound like, yes, we, can, we have the right to purchase products without paying tax on it. We as native consumers, but we can't market that regulatory advantage. Every state, every Township, every county, every country in the world can market its regulatory advantages, but not native people. And you know, and here's the other thing that's interesting: in New York state law, anybody in New York state can have up to two cartons of cigarettes that are that don't have a New York state stamp on it. It's, it's exempt from their use tax or excise tax, their state tax, if if they only have two cartons or less. And so, well, how does that happen? Well, they can, they can go to Virginia. They can go to North Carolina. They can go to Canada. They can go to, you know, Europe, wherever, they, wherever it is that they buy, want to buy a carton of cigarettes or two. They can bring it on their person into New York State for their use and consumption. And they don't have to pay any tax on it. So 
John Q. White guy can go any place in the world outside of New York, buy two cartons of cigarettes, and bring it back into New York State without any tax liability. Except, and they won't actually say this, they just imply this, they can't go to a native territory and do that. Because even though we're still in business and, and we fight this every single day, we're fighting this with a clear sentiment from both the feds and the, uh, you know, and the, the state that they have the right to tax, to tax the transactions that happen in our territory if we're selling it to somebody who's not enrolled in a given territory. Even though there's plenty of non-native people who live on territory, you know, whether they're, you know, uh, you know, husbands. I mean, there are non-enrolled uh, people who live on, you know, native territories. And if they buy tobacco, they're using it, consuming it on territory. But New York State says, no, we can tax that. And, of course, we say they can't. And they, and they really can't. I mean, you know, they, they really can't do it. They just say that they have the right to do it. And now, so th- this case that, that I was talking about that got dismissed for um, an illegal search and seizure, it is classic because, because we don't win anything. We don't come out of the, the court with, with clarity. We don't see a, a million-plus-dollar fine eradicated because the court says to New York State, look, you can't do this. Now, let me go back. I mentioned that I, that I talked to these two New York State senators to, into writing this letter to the tax department, and they did. So, I, in fact, I helped draft the letter. And they wrote to the, to the commissioner of taxation and said, we want it in writing because it's, there's just too much that's not clear. It's our view that New York State does not have the right to tax native brands or native-to-native commerce. That's what, you know, two senators uh, um, uh, George Maziarz, a Republican, and Tim Kennedy, a Democrat in, in New York State. That's what they wrote to the tax commissioner. And he refused to answer. He would not put it in writing. He wouldn't tell them in a phone call. He would not address it. And this, you know, so this is a, almost 10 years now. Two state senators couldn't get that answer. So how are Native people going to get an answer to that question? And even if the state has a policy, which clearly they do because they seize that product, that does not conform to what the lawmakers believe is the case, we have no means to, to re, we have no remedy. We get charged, we fight it, and if we find a sympathetic judge or two, they still won't make a ruling. They'll just find a way to, to dump the case, to dismiss it. Well, that doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't ever address any of these issues. Now, and that kind of brings me to, to what happened last week. So just last week, a bunch of shops here on the Cattaraugus Territory and the Allegheny Territory of the Seneca Nation, in, in what is, what some people would call Western New York, but, but, but we maintain that the, the Seneca Territory is not a part of New York. Why? Because... Frankly, the treaties that, that white people wrote said, we acknowledge the land is yours. The United States will never claim the same nor disturb you in the free use and enjoyment of your territory. Well, that's pretty clear. Granted, it's that 1794, but nothing's changed. There, was, there never changed. It said, okay, 
what we said in 1794 no longer applies. We're going we're gonna to claim that you, your land is our land now, but you still get to live there. No, that, that, that conversation never took place. So the very language that comes from George Washington that says, we acknowledge that your land is yours. No doctrine of Christian discovery here. No, this is the United States saying, we acknowledge that you hold title, that the land, the property is yours. And we will never claim the same, nor disturb you. Well, you're disturbing us. Well, here, here's this letter that, that comes from, um, and the guy's name is um, Patrick, or no, James Patrick Kennedy. He's a U.S. attorney in the Western District of New York, and he says, we have received information suggesting that certain individuals and businesses here in the Western District of New York may be engaged in the unlicensed and illegal uh, distribution of unstamped, um, uh, improperly packaged cigarettes on which uh, applicable federal and state taxes have not been paid. Well, first off, we aren't in the Western District of New York. We are on Seneca land. Now, I'm not Seneca, so I'm speaking, but I do live here in Seneca territory. But this territory, and you know what? The guy who preceded him, he was told this in a meeting because on one of those rare occasions that we did sit at the table, <laughs> the very gentleman that I went to Washington with in 2010 uh, and met with the senior policy advisor to the White House, Ross John told William Hochul, whose wife is probably going to become governor um, any day now, <laughs> uh, told him that this was that you are no longer in, in New York State. You're no longer in the United States. You are on Seneca land. And those guys took offense to it. I mean, they, you can't even say something that is, that is provable and, his, and is historically correct without pissing off these white guys uh, who— are the ones who bring charges. So his successor, which is um, this um, James Patrick Kennedy, writes this letter. And, and, and then again, he, and, he, and he cites this idea that we need to pay New York State tax. I mean, for, now, he's, he specifically mentions a type of cigarette that doesn't have the federal excise tax paid on it. Because most of what we sell here, native brands, they do have... Um, they, they do pay federal excise tax on that product. I mean, it doesn't go into the broad marketplace, but it does come here to retail outlets with the federal excise tax paid. Yes, that $10 a carton I, I mentioned earlier, that's paid on that. They have UCC codes. They have Surgeon General warning labels on them. But Kennedy raises this issue about a a certain class of product that is, it's not widely sold, but it's sold in some places that they call Rollies that are just cigarettes in a bag. And they said, well, that's illegal. Yeah, but you're also saying, I mean, you're really what you're saying is that every carton of cigarettes, native brand, that they're all illegal. And, you know, and he cites the Cigarette Contraband Trafficking Act, which, you know, which is language that, again, written that doesn't, it doesn't even mention us. So it basically says that you know you have to have a New York State stamp on on the product unless you're a New York State licensed you know wholesaler. Well, they're Seneca licensed wholesalers. So this letter just came last week. So last week, the U.S. Attorney from the Western District of New York sends out a bunch of these letters threatening to seize uh, to, uh, to fine people put them in jail for five, up to five years and seize property 
on native territory. Well, that ain't going to happen. Of course it's not going to happen. So, so why does he send this letter? It's because we never have an opportunity to resolve the, the, the wrong language in their law. We don't pay New York State tax on, on product. And no, New York State, you don't have a right to tax the, the sales of product on our territory. Now, if you want to catch your, one, of your, <laughs> one of your constituents coming onto our territory, purchasing more than two cartons of cigarettes to take it back for his use and consumption in New York State, then, then have at it. Now, and, and all of your, your arguing about whether the courts have held that they can impose a minimum burden on us to collect taxes for the, for the state, well, that's never happened here. You know, that, that court ruling may have happened in other territories, but not here. Not here where there's language that says that the United States acknowledges that our land is ours and they will never claim the same. See, that, that, that kind of, you know, whatever they did do to, to other territories, and look, I'm not trying to throw the other territories under a bus, but part of the problem is that we have to get some of the nations to step up and, and stand up to this stuff. But where? Where? In court? Well, see, that's the problem. The problem is that even when we go into court, they will never hear the argument. I mean, I've listened to this one judge who was almost baiting, I think the Seneca Nation, I don't know who else, but saying, are you going to cite your treaties as a defense? Well, first off, let me, let's be clear here. They aren't our treaties. We didn't write them. We didn't ask for them. We didn't petition or pray or sue or do anything else for these treaties. You came to us. They aren't our treaties. They're yours. You wrote them. You signed them. In fact, we could argue whether they're legitimate because, you know, just because it has a bunch of X's on it. I mean, you, you, you never once in the course of any of this treaty negotiation said, well, let's be sure that your protocols are being followed. I mean, I don't know what your process is, but if your process involves, you know, council and grand council and, you know, um, adjudicating this thing through the longhouse or whatever else, you go through your process. No, they didn't care. That. Just give me a guy who could put an X or a thumbprint on a, on a treaty. And, but you wrote them. We don't need to cite the Canandaigua Treaty. You wrote the goddamn thing. It's your language that says the United States acknowledges that our land is ours. And that they will never claim the same, or just nor disturb us in the free use and enjoyment of our lands. So, the idea that this Judge Akara w- was baiting the Seneca Nation, and of course the Seneca Nation backed off. Why? Because we have this delusional idea that, oh, we have these precious documents, and if we if we defend ourselves with these documents, that you know, they'll be diminished. Yeah, you're right, they're going to be diminished because you know what's going to happen? The United States, just like always, is going to break the treaty again. So make them break the goddamn thing. Let's stop pretending these sacred documents are there in any way, shape, or form to, to force some sort of justice or equity. They don't. We don't need to cite these, these treaties. They should if Ruth Bader Ginsburg can cite the doctrine of Christian discovery as footnote number one while she's ruling against the native people, church dogma, then she sure as hell could have said, you know what? 
I read the uh, Canada-Negro Treaty. I mean, look, when people talk about, you know, these, uh, these active judges, you know, the, these, you know, these judges who are legislating from the bench, well, that's exactly what they do. But they won't, they are not being fair arbiters of, of justice. Look, in the case that I told you about with the, with the, uh, the seas load uh, going to Mohawk territory, the judge was actually providing more arguments against my buddy, the, the Seneca wholesaler. He was actually in, entering into the, the, the discussion Stuff that the state hadn't even provided, you know, some argument against. The, you know, he cited, you know, some public health law that the state hadn't even used. So when we go into court, we're not we're not fighting the state. We're not fighting a corporation. We're not fighting the United States. We're fighting the 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 prosecutor, the the, the attorneys for the state, or whoever else, and we're fighting the judge too. So don't tell me, don't you dare stand in front of me at the National Museum of the American Indian on a stage with all of your agencies there and tell me that you're concerned because your courts are the current remedy. They are not. They are not the current remedy. They are, they are not a remedy for us at all. They are a vehicle for you to fine us, for you, a vehicle for you to imprison us. That's what they are. They are not a remedy. You know what a remedy is? It's diplomacy. Look, when did we give you the authority to tax us or any activity on our territories? When did we give any of that to you? In 1924, when you declared we were citizens, we didn't ask for that. I mean, maybe some people did. Well, let them become citizens. But you can't make a declaration that all Native people are now are hereby U.S. citizens. I mean, that's that was already being talked about as a war crime. Before the word genocide was even, you know, developed, before that concept, before the, the word was coined, they called that denationalization. The idea of stripping away somebody's national character or cultural or whatever character and then imposing yours upon them, saying, no, you're not this anymore, you're this. It's a, it was a war crime. But there is no question that we are still under assault. Look, we get, we, get a, we, we get a letter, and essentially this is threatening everybody. Even the Seneca Nation sells, sells cigarettes in, the, in their stores and in their casinos that don't have New York State stamps on them. And so this U.S. attorney, premising part of his, his letter on this idea that there, there are some cigarettes that don't even have federal excise taxes. Well, look, I'm not even suggesting... That the federal excise tax is, is something that we should have to pay. Look, we did pay it. Why did we pay it? Because we couldn't buy the product without it already on there. I mean, especially be, before we were manufacturing Native brands. And, and, of course, now we have probably a dozen Native brands that went through the whole process. And they got, you know, um, a license from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives. They, they produce UCC codes, and they put the uh, Surgeon General warnings on them. They package them a certain way, and they, but they don't get stamps because they aren't going to New York State wholesalers. In fact, they can't. Native brands cannot be taxed by New York State. Why? Because we were excluded. I mean, I'm not saying that we would have done it anyway, 
But we are we cannot take a native brand, Seneca's or you know whatever brand. We can't take that and say, okay, we're going to get a New York State wholesaler to, to put stamps on. No, they won't. Why? Because we're not a part of the the Tobacco Settlement Act, you know, or, or any of that other stuff. So that door is closed. The products that we produce on native territories are only sold on native territories. Look, if, if they end up in the streets of New York City, it's because someone from New York came to one of our territories and bought it. And you know what? If they bought two cartons or less, they were, they were absolutely legal to do so. So I go back to that, <laughs> to 2010, you know, at the National Museum of the American Indian, with all of those federal agencies represented there, them trying to suggest that they're re- revisiting this UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And ultimately, Obama did endorse the aspirations of the agreement. No, he didn't, he didn't sign on to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I know you people think that. And you also think Canada did and you know, Australia did, New Zealand. I don't know about Australia and New Zealand, but I will say both the United States and Canada merely suggested that they endorse the aspirations of the agreement. Like, like, it's, like, yes, this is a hopeful document. Yeah, this is great that maybe someday we will meet the minimum standard for survival and dignity of indigenous peoples. That's what, that's what Obama said. And he said, we endorse the aspirations, provided it doesn't conflict with U.S. law. Well, what the hell do you think the whole thing was for in the first place? The reason for the declaration was to change policy and law of these nation states who were oppressing native people. It was to say, no, you shouldn't do this anymore. And what's the standard that was called out in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? It said any activity, and, and it's mentioned you know, six or seven times in the, uh, in, in the articles, and it calls for free, prior, and informed consent. So when we hear somebody like Obama, and, and I don't know if Biden's doing the same thing, but other presidents have done it, they said, well, we've, uh, we issued an executive order that says any um, executive agency or department that um, adopts a new policy that will have effects or impact Native people, uh, we require a um, consultation first. Well, you know what? Consultation isn't the standard called out in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Consent was. Free, prior, and informed consent. Not free, prior, and informed consultations where you, do, where you talk at us and then do what the hell else you're going to do anyway. Look, this, this stuff drives me nuts. And I will be making another trip to Washington. So when I do, and now with the pandemic subsiding, I hope to do a show right in studio at WPFW. I hope to re-engage in doing live, inve- live events like I did, did in New York for, for all these years prior to the pandemic. But I also will do it with the intent to go to Washington, D.C. to raise hell on some of this stuff. We need to demand that the states and the feds, the prosecutors, the tax departments, whoever, treasury department, whomever, that before they try to take one of the laws they passed regarding some other territory and try to impose it on us, 
that we meet first and that they get our consent, not just talk at us, because that's the minimum standard that the world has agreed upon. We should call out the United States for what they do, and this is the way to do it. Look, I want to thank you guys for listening to me, bearing with me uh, solo without, without Regan. Uh, we'll be back next week and uh, look forward to it. I'm John Kane for Regan DeLoggins, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>